We turn in the scriptures to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, the text for the sermon will be the first nine verses. And we will read the whole chapter together. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem, Shem was an hundred years old and begat Arphaxad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad five hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived five and thirty years and begat Selah. And Arphaxad lived after he begat Selah four hundred and three years and begat sons and daughters. And Selah lived thirty years and begat Eber, And Selah lived after he begat Eber four hundred and three years and begat sons and daughters. And Eber lived four and thirty years and begat Peleg. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg four hundred and thirty years and begat sons and daughters. And Peleg lived thirty years and begat Reu. Peleg lived after he begat Reu two hundred and nine years and begat sons and daughters. And Reu lived two and thirty years and begat Sirug. And Reu lived after he begat Sirug two hundred and seven years, and begat sons and daughters. And Sirug lived thirty years, and begat Nahor. And Sirug lived after he begat Nahor two hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived nine and twenty years, and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah an hundred and nineteen years, and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived seventy years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity, in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years. And Terah died in Haran. The text that we consider is the first nine verses of this chapter. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true story of our text 
the story of the Tower of Babel is tremendously significant for our understanding of the history of the world and the history of the church. As you may recall, last winter I chose to preach this series of sermons on the opening chapters of Genesis because it's my firm conviction that it's extremely important for us with our children in this modern world in which we live that we have a firm foundation of faith in our hearts concerning the truth about the beginning of the world. And in this modern time, we are constantly assaulted by the darts of unbelief from the secular world around us that thinks it knows the true origin of all things through its science. This afternoon, I draw this series to a conclusion. This will be the last sermon on this series. And we do that by looking at the history of the Tower of Babel, a history which the Lord had inspired Moses to write here in our text so that his people throughout all the ages of history would have an understanding about the truth concerning the first attempts of Satan to establish his kingdom in the world as well as the truth concerning the reality that we see all around us, this reality of the diversity of languages in the world, and also that we will see, we hope to see in the text, how even this history points us forward to the glorious coming of the kingdom of Christ and the glorious triumph of Jehovah in history, so that we together with all believers who speak all of the languages of the world, will know that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. The true story of our text probably took place about 100 years after the flood and probably about 200 years before the birth of Abraham. And we know that because Moses writes in chapter 10, verse 25, that about 100 years after the flood, a baby boy was born named Peleg, and his name means division, and he was named that, for in his days was the earth divided. And so it seems that at the time when this boy was born is the time when the history of our text happened. In that century after the flood, there must have been a tremendous growth in the population of the world once again through the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But although the family tree of Noah was branching in that century, everyone still spoke the same language, the same language that God had created in the beginning that he had implanted into the minds and hearts of Adam and Eve on the day when he made them. That language continued to be spoken from that day until the Tower of Babel. We don't know what that language was for sure, although some think it was the Hebrew language, which is very possible. We're told in our text that it came to pass in those days that men were journeying from the east and they found a beautiful plain in the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is the area that we now call the Middle East. It's the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. There was a lush, beautiful, fertile area there in the plain and they decided to dwell there and settle there. That was the setting of the event that we consider in our text. The setting of a rebellious uprising against the Lord and of the Lord's glorious triumph over them. So let's consider the triumph of Jehovah at Babel. First of all, we'll look at the defiant building of the Tower of Babel. Secondly, the miraculous confusion of the language. 
And finally, the world significance of the event. We read in our text that when men journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, or come along. Let us make brick. Let us burn the brick thoroughly. And they made brick for stone and slime, or pitch, or asphalt for mortar. And they said, Go to, come. Let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Just as would be the case in later ages of history, so also it was the case here in this early point in history that these men and women who started to gather and congregate in that fertile plain in the land of Shinar had a mighty and ambitious leader. The oldest son of Ham was named Cush. And one of the sons of Cush was a man by the name of Nimrod. We are told in the previous chapter, Genesis 10, that Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kelna. Nimrod was in the line of Ham through his son Cush, and he was at that time a mighty one in the earth. He was a man who aspired to greatness, to dominion, to empire. And this was a man who had already made a name for himself in the earth through his prowess and exploits in hunting. He was known as a mighty hunter before the Lord. A mighty hunter in the Lord's presence who lived in arrogance and defiance against the Lord of heaven and earth. Nimrod made a name and fame for himself by bringing down some of the great beasts that were on the earth in that day, perhaps the mighty behemoth or the monstrous leviathan of the sea that we find described in the book of Job, for example. There were mighty beasts and creatures on the land and in the sea. Nimrod made a name for himself. He was a mighty hunter, such a hunter that there was a proverb that continued all the way to the days of Moses that if a person was a mighty hunter, you might say, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Moses tells us that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Nimrod wasn't content just to be a mighty hunter of animals. He wanted to be a ruler of men. And he started his kingdom at Babel in the land of Shinar. Not just Babel, but also Erech and Akkad and Kalna. We have to envision here a vast empire that he was building. Already he had succeeded in building four cities. But the center and heart of his kingdom was Babel. Seeing as the whole family tree of Noah was still speaking the same language, we can imagine that a man of great aspirations and ambitions, such as Nimrod, would be able to inspire people and gather people around himself. And that's exactly what he did. And with great speed and with great ease, because they all spoke the same language, they were able to start building a city and a tower. And their goal was that this tower would go up, 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 and reach into the clouds, even onto heaven itself. So we must imagine there in the plain vast numbers of people busily going here and there making bricks and making mortar and stacking those bricks up in a tower that was going upward toward the heavens. This project and this vision of Nimrod and his followers there in the plain of Shinar was defiance against God and rebellion against the known will and commands of God. There is nothing wrong with building a city. 
And there is nothing wrong even with building a tower, even a great tower. And men throughout history have built many great towers that go up into the sky. Later in history, God would even reveal his delight in certain cities, particularly the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city that God delighted in. And he even told the Jews, walk about Jerusalem and count her towers and examine her bulwarks and tell the next generation. And after they returned from captivity, he told them to build the walls of Zion and to build up her towers and ramparts and palaces and temple. God delights in the city of Jerusalem. But the men at Babel who were following Nimrod, were building this city and this tower in defiance against God, in hatred of God, in rebellion, and in arrogance. We know that from the text. First of all, we know that because the text tells us that, verse 4, they did not want to be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Remember what God said to Noah and his sons after the flood? In chapter 9, verse 1, he said to them, Now be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. The will of God for the sons of Noah was that they spread, that they scatter, that they fill the earth. But Nimrod and his followers did not want to obey God. They did not want to be scattered. They wanted to concentrate all of their numbers and all of their powers in one place and to establish a powerful, mighty, central kingdom of man, by man, for man. And in that way to stamp out the covenant community of men who called upon the name of Jehovah. In the second place, Whereas we know from the Ten Commandments, and they knew that too in their conscience, that they must worship one God and him alone. They must worship Jehovah as the only true and living God. But they wanted to worship Nimrod. They were enamored of Nimrod. They gave their worship and praise to Nimrod and to themselves. And we know that from verse 4 as well, because they said, let us Make us a name. That was their desire. That was their motivation. They wanted to make a name for themselves. That was Nimrod's motivation. He wanted to make a name for himself. He wasn't content to already have a name as a mighty hunter. He wanted to have a name as the emperor of the world. And those who were following him too shared his vision. They too wanted to share in the name of Nimrod, in the name of their tower and their kingdom. That was idolatry, arrogance, and pride. And in the third place, we know that because they wanted to build a tower that would reach onto heaven. Verse 4, again. Let us build us a city and a tower, but that wasn't sufficient. It must be a tower whose top may reach onto heaven. That was the kind of tower that they wanted. The reason that they wanted to build such a tall tower was not so that they would have a place of refuge just in case another worldwide flood might come their way. That was not the reason. We don't read anything about that as their reason in the text. But when we read through the passage, the impression that we get is, Pride and arrogance <clears throat> and defiance toward God. And so the motivation for that tall, tall tower was pride, arrogance, defiance. They wanted to storm the gates of heaven. They wanted to overthrow God from his throne. They wanted to take control of the world. And doesn't that sound familiar? That was the very motivation and the very aspiration of Satan himself. When Satan wanted to storm the throne room of God and overthrow him from his throne and make himself to be God of the universe instead of Jehovah. 
And when God cast him down out of heaven to the earth, Satan then sought to deceive mankind to try to do the very same thing. And in our text, we find his first attempt to establish through human beings a worldwide empire in defiance of Jehovah, an empire that would oppose and exalt itself against God and set itself up as God instead of God. After this first attempt, when we read the rest of the Old Testament, we find that Satan doesn't give up. He never gives up. He tried to do the very same thing through the kingdom of Egypt, another descendant of Ham. Through the great pharaohs of Egypt, he tried to establish a mighty, defiant, and arrogant kingdom. He did that in Assyria. He did that in Babylon, in Persia, in Greece, in Rome, through its great Caesars. And today, he continues. He continues to rage, as we sang from Psalm 2. Wherefore do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? It's because Satan inspires them to rage against God and against his Christ and against his people. Satan is the one who continues to inspire men throughout all civilizations today to build up the Tower of Babel, to defy God, and to exalt man as God. To think of and to mention No other evidences of that. Just think only of man's attempt to explore space, to send rockets up into outer space and to send those ships throughout the solar system and throughout the galaxy to explore the heavens above. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, God calls us to explore the universe. He wants us to to understand the world that he has made and to worship him as our creator. But why does man do that today? Why do they send up rockets to explore the universe? It's because they want to discover evidence that there is no God. Because they want to exalt themselves as God. Because they want to make man to be the master of his fate and the master of the universe. Those are the motives. That's the Tower of Babel all over again. What we need to understand from the text is that Nimrod's kingdom of Babel was a type of the kingdom of Antichrist that will rise in the last days and that is in the process of rising even now. Nimrod was the first Antichrist. And he was a type of the last. Like Nimrod, according to Daniel 7, verse 25, the Antichrist will be a man with a mouth speaking great words against the Most High and wearing out the saints of the Most High. Like Nimrod, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, Antichrist will be a man of sin who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and all that shows itself to be God. Like Nimrod, according to John in Revelation 13, who saw this vision, Antichrist will be a dreadful beast rising up out of the sea and who will achieve dominion over the whole of the world. But although he will be a dreadful beast, the world will wonder after him. And we'll say, who is like unto the beast? And who can make war with him? But unlike Nimrod, who failed, the Antichrist will succeed. For a short time, Scripture says, for a time and times and half a time, for a short time, the Antichrist will succeed in establishing at last the kingdom and tower of Babel a worldwide dominion. In this present time, the church is busy preaching the gospel in all nations. That's our task. Throughout the whole of this present age, our task as the church is to preach and spread the gospel in all nations, to teach our children and raise them up in the fear of the Lord, and to do mission work. 
The church continues to do that and will continue to do that until the work is finished. And when the gospel has gone into all places, then Satan will be loosed for a short season and the beast will rise up out of the sea, the final manifestation of Nimrod. And for a time and times and half a time, he will silence the church. And that will be the time which Jesus prophesied that we must flee to the mountains when we see the abomination of desolation in the holy place. What's the good news then? The gospel in the text can be found in the name that was given to that place, Babel. Confusion. That's the meaning of the word Babel. Confusion. And that word teaches us what God did there and what God will do in the last days. Let's go back to the text. In verse 5, we read that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men Builded. The name Jehovah appears in the text. Jehovah. The name that reveals that our God is unchanging and eternal and faithful to his people and faithful to his promises. We're told that Jehovah, the one true and living God, came down to see what they were doing there in the plain of Shinar. Now we know, of course, that Our God does not have to come down from heaven in order to see what is going on here on the earth because he is everywhere present. He sees everything that is happening at all times. But isn't it a very striking and vivid way to describe that? To describe the omnipresence and the all-seeing eye of our God and the sovereignty of our God over all things. Jehovah came down. Moses says, because Jehovah, he lives in heaven. He dwells in heaven above. He sits on the throne of heaven and he reigns with his sovereignty over all of the universe. He, the great Jehovah, the great God Almighty, came down to see what man was doing here on the earth. And he saw, he saw everything that they were doing. He saw the motives of their hearts. He saw the actions of their hands. He saw their vision. He saw their project. He saw their defiance and their disobedience. Because nothing escapes the gaze of Jehovah. And then we are told in verse 6 that the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Jehovah saw the oneness of the people. He saw the oneness of their language, the language that he had given to them as a precious gift for communication and communion, for prayer and worship. He saw them abusing the gift of language and pressing it into the service of Satan. He saw them beginning to do something, beginning to build a tower, beginning to build a city. And that's not where it would end. Because Jehovah knew their hearts. He knew their plans. He knew their imaginations. And he said, now nothing will be stopped from them what they have imagined to do. Once again, we know that it's not as if God did not see this coming. It's not as if God had to come down and and to investigate what was going on here in the earth. And he was taken by surprise and reacted to man. But we just have, once again, a striking and vivid way of explaining what God did at Babel. And we have also the revelation of this. What is in the mind of men to do? They have in their mind to do something. What is it that they want to do? What is it that they imagine to do that God restrained them from doing? It's to establish a worldwide dominion. And God said, no. No, not yet. 
Now is not the time. I have a time for that, but now is not it. And then we read in verse 7, the Lord said, Go to. Notice how he uses the same language that they used. When they beckoned to each other, Go to, go to, come, let us come together. Now God says, Go to, let us go down. And there you hear an echo of the triune God conversing with himself, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, conversing within the Holy Trinity. Go to, let us go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. What the Lord then did was a tremendous miracle. And that miracle, that wonder that he accomplished there, was his triumph over the wickedness and the defiance of those men who tried to build a kingdom against him. He confused their language. Do we understand what a wonder that was? In a single instant of time, God confounded, scrambled up, confused the language that they were all speaking. Language is a very complex and very intricate thing, isn't it? Just think of the language that we speak, the words that we speak, the sounds that we make, the letters that we write, the words that we form, sentences, the grammatical structure, all the different ways of speaking, all the figures and metaphors, everything that makes up a language. He confused it in an instant. Language resides in the minds, in the brains, and in the hearts and souls of men. The miracle that God did here shows his tremendous power, shows that he is truly omnipotent. This God who created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power, this God who sent a flood to destroy all the ungodly in a moment of time, confused the language in the hearts and minds and brains of those men and women. Language resides in our brains as well, in our memories. God did something in the brains of those men. He he confused and changed the neurological circuitry and the memory of words and phrases and sounds and sentences, the meanings of words. He scrambled up all of the letters and all of the words and phrases that they formerly understood one way, and now all of a sudden, as if it was the most natural thing to do, they started speaking a different language, one they had never heard before, one they had never spoken before. That was a tremendous miracle. Tremendous. We don't know how many new languages God created at Babel. The text doesn't tell us. And we know that language has developed and new languages have emerged over the thousands of years of history. But the text teaches us the beginning of the diversity of language. It was by an act of God's power at the Tower of Babel. And the name of that place from that point on was Babel, confusion. Because there the Lord confused the language of men. The result of that miraculous work of God was confusion, chaos, pandemonium in the plain of Shinar. Imagine all of these men working, building their bricks and their mortar, setting up their tower, and suddenly the man next to them is speaking a tongue that he's never heard before. and He has no idea what he means or what he is saying. And he talks to someone else and it sounds different yet. And to someone else and that sounds different yet. The pandemonium that broke out there in the plain of Shinar, it was utter chaos as everyone tried to find someone who spoke words that he could understand. And therefore, the result was, as we read in verse 8, 
The Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. The project came to a sudden halt, a standstill in a moment of time. The Lord Jehovah effortlessly upended Nimrod's whole project and his whole vision about which he thought he was so powerful and thought he was in control of his destiny. In a moment of time, God flipped it all upside down and brought it to an end. The wonder that God accomplished at Babel, we have to see now, is a work of his judgment and salvation. And that's the way God often works. He saves his people through the judgment of the wicked. This was, first of all, a judgment on the wicked world. There at Babel, God passed his divine sentence of condemnation upon Nimrod and his, all of his followers. He pronounced them guilty. He condemned them. He condemned their project. And he judged and punished them right there. The punishment that God brought on them was the very fact that he confused their languages. And by that confusion, he splintered them into groups. He divided all mankind. And all we have to do is just think of the preciousness of unity, the preciousness of communion, the preciousness of fellowship, that even ungodly and unbelieving people love Birds of the same feather flock together. We love communion. We love unity. We love togetherness. And God divided them. He splintered them. He divided them. That was a judgment of God. Back to chapter 10, verse 25. Remember the little baby boy that was born right around that time? Whom his father and mother named Peleg? For in his days was the earth divided. They refused to spread and to replenish the earth, and therefore God forced them through the confusion of tongues to scatter abroad over the face of the earth. And no doubt, the result was great sorrow and suffering for those ungodly men. In Revelation 13, verse 3, when John sees that vision of the beast coming up out of the sea, with many heads and many horns, John says this, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And a very sound interpretation of that text is that what John saw there, the wounding to death of one of the heads of the beast, was what God did at the Tower of Babel. The beast was trying to rise up out of the sea there at Babel. And God wounded its head to death. He stopped it right then and there. And it could not develop any further. God said, no, not yet. The beast will not yet rise. God has continued that confusion, that Babel, even to our present day. God does not allow the human race to unify, but he keeps them divided until he's finished all his purposes and plans. This was a judgment of God upon Satan and his attempt to establish his kingdom. But in the second place, it was a work of God's salvation. The salvation of his people, that's why God came for the salvation of his people and the glory of his name. He always brings judgment upon the wicked world to rescue his people from that wicked world. Where were God's people at this time? They were not participating in this God-dishonoring, God-hating civilization of Nimrod. But they were trying to obey the commands of God, to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth. They were being oppressed, and they were in danger of being stamped out by Nimrod and his kingdom. And just as is so often the case throughout history, in that moment when the church seems about to be destroyed, God comes 
and destroys the wicked and preserves his church. The triumph of Jehovah over the ungodly was salvation for his church. Now that work of God at Babel points forward. It's a type. Just as the kingdom of Babel was a type of the kingdom of Antichrist in the end days, the triumph of Jehovah is a gospel type that pointed forward, first of all, to the triumph of Jehovah in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in the text that Jehovah came down. But when did Jehovah fully come down? It was in the incarnation of his son. When another little baby boy was born, and they called his name Jesus. And when our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, came into the world, he came into the world not to set up his own glorious, powerful, wealthy kingdom on earth, although Satan tempted him with that, but he came to lay down his life on the cross. And our Lord Jesus himself, by submitting to that ungodly, satanic power of his day, which was the Roman Empire, with a new Nimrod sitting on the throne in Rome, Caesar Augustus, and his governor, Pontius Pilate, in Jerusalem, our Lord Jesus submitted himself to that wicked world power, submitted himself to their unjust treatment and their unjust judgment of him. And he did that precisely to bring the just judgment of God upon the whole of the wicked world. Because when Pilate and Herod and the Jews gathered together in Jerusalem and said, crucify him, crucify him, and nailed him to the cross, God's own son, that was the greatest and most wicked sin that the world has ever committed. And so it was the judgment of this world. When the world judged and rejected Christ, God judged and rejected the wicked world at the cross. But the glorious gospel is that Jesus not only brought judgment on the world by laying down his life, but above all, by laying down his life, he revealed, like at no other time in history, the supreme love of the triune God, the mercy and the grace of God for us sinners. He laid down his life for us, taking our sins upon him so that through his crucifixion we might be crucified to the world and the world might be crucified to us and we might be redeemed and forgiven all our sins. It was through the shedding of his blood that he redeemed us from all the power of Satan, redeemed us to give us everlasting life. And so finally the triumph of Jehovah at Babel points finally forward to the triumph of Jehovah at the second coming of our Lord. Our Lord Jesus, having risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, now reigns over all history. And he's coming. He's coming. We are told in Revelation 13 that when the beast rises up, the final Nimrod, and that deadly wound is healed... When the man of sin comes and he is able to solve the problem of division in the human race, he's able to bring together a unity of man over against God. Right at that moment when the last Nimrod stands at the peak of his power, seemingly invincible, seemingly unconquerable, as if he's going to take over the whole of the universe and claim it as his kingdom, Right at that moment, the crucified and risen Christ will appear on the clouds of heaven with all the hosts of heaven, thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels with him. And simply by the brightness of his appearing will consume Nimrod once and for all. The story of God's triumph at Babel 
points to our hope for the ultimate victory of God in history. What God did at Babel is therefore tremendously significant for our understanding of world history. Today, if you would go into a university and you would take a class on literature, language, history, and the origin of languages, you would hear from worldly professors an evolutionistic, unbiblical, and probably atheistic explanation for the reality of so many languages in the world. That's a lie. God reveals to us in our text that he created one language in the beginning and by a work of his awesome judgment and salvation confounded it at Babel. God did that. And yes, in the thousands of years since then, through God's providence, languages have developed and progressed and even new languages have emerged. But God is the author of the diversity of language. We must stand, children, young people, brothers and sisters, we must stand on the truth of Scripture. This is no myth. This is the truth. This is the history of the world. Furthermore, what God did at Babel was not only to initiate the diversity of language, but it also initiated the diversity of cultures and the diversity of nations and the diversity of races and the diversity of religions. Because we are told there that when God did that, he scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. What happened? They started to gather around people that spoke the same tongue that they did. And then they were forced to move in all directions, to the north and the south and the east and the west. And those groups of people who spoke the same language developed into new cultures, unique cultures, unique nations, and unique religions as well. Because those people carried in their memories the distant remembrance of a worldwide flood, to name only one fact of ancient history. They carried it with them. And although they distorted it and twisted it and they turned the truth into all kinds of lies, you can still find today in all cultures a story of a worldwide flood. But they turned the truth that they knew into lies and they developed heathen religions. Buddhism arose. Hinduism arose. Taoism. All the African religions. The Indian religions. Idolatry and rebellion. But we end with the positive note, the positive significance is that God works all things together for good to those who love him in all nations of the world for his glory. God determined even before the world began that he would save a church, a church of people who would be one in Christ, but diverse in every other way. Diverse in language, diverse in culture, diverse in, in ethnicity, in skin color, and all the rest. That was God's eternal plan at Babel, He divided humanity into nations and tongues and cultures to bring to pass his beautiful, glorious plan of redemption to save a people, one in Christ, diverse in all natural manner, all natural means. And then this. Throughout the Old Testament, those nations went their own way. But in the glorious day of the Messiah, Pentecost, He poured out his spirit on all flesh. 
And the 120 believers began to speak in other tongues the wonderful works of God. That's the reverse of Babel. At Babel, he divided their language and scattered them abroad at Pentecost. By a similar miracle, he gave them the ability to speak in those tongues all the different nations as a sign that through the power of the blood and spirit of Christ, he gathers together in one a people of Jews and Gentiles of all nations of the world. The only true healing of the division at Babel is found in the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ is not a national church. The Church of Christ is not a church of one race or of one language or of one tribe or one kindred. It's a Catholic church, which means it's a worldwide church. It's a church made up of all nations and kindreds and tribes and tongues. And therefore... Christ gave as his last command the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all nations and preach the gospel to every creature because it is his will to gather his church in China and Japan and India in Brazil and Venezuela and Colombia in the nations of Europe in the nations of Africa and to gather one great people, as many as the stars in the heaven. When the preaching of the gospel is complete, and our Lord returns at last, then we will be able to see the beauty and the glory of God's eternal idea when we gather together with all his people in heaven, and we see the unity and diversity of that one church of Jesus Christ. May that day come quickly. Amen. Our Father and our God, we stand in amazement at thy wisdom, thy grace, thy power. Thou art indeed the God of gods and King of kings and Lord of lords. And may all praise and glory be unto thee. We thank thee for giving us understanding of the scriptures. We pray that thou would apply it to our hearts, that we might not be afraid of the powers of darkness. Fill our hearts with gladness. Fill us with courage. Fill us with hope. And grant that we might learn to pray for the coming of thy kingdom.